0: rises to meet him in the air, and the wedding then is imminent. It's when he comes from a long journey to claim his bride. So we are in that period prior to the seventh trump. We are in that period prior to Christ returning and the saints, the bride, rising to meet him in the air. This is a difficult time. And it's a long-range relationship, which is also very difficult. Some of you may have tried to carry on a relationship over time, over space, apart, not being able to be together, and yet try to carry it on by phone or by letter or whatever. And it's a very difficult thing to do. An engagement period is difficult regardless, even if you're together. And in some ways, especially physically speaking, sometimes it can be very challenging that way as well, because you're ready to do things that you're not yet licensed to do. So an engagement period can be a very, very difficult time, and we find ourselves engaged to Christ. And life is not always easy, is it? our relationship with him long-range is not easy. It's very difficult to be what we need to be, to live up to the standards he set, to say completely and in honesty and in truth, I'm ready to marry Emmanuel the Christ. Can any of us say that we have achieved to that degree, that we're now ready to be married to God. That's a mouthful. We're going to explore that some today because this is the preparation period. And I want to go back in history a bit because Israel's history in marriage with God is very checkered. Well, I don't know whether you could call it checkered or not, because that means good and bad. It hasn't been, for the most part, very good over time. Let's begin in Deuteronomy 5. We were here recently in the series about God, uh, but that can be said of almost any scripture. We could carry on a series about God and all his offices from now on and cover every part of the Bible, because that's what it's really all about. But let's go back to Deuteronomy 5 and look at it from a little bit different angle today. Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep and do them. Now he's referring back to the time of Exodus 20, Exodus 12 to 20, when they came out of Egypt or Mithraim and when God gave the Ten Commandments originally. Deuteronomy is a recap. It's moving on downstream a bit in history. And he is here reminding them of what happened, bringing it back to mind. It seems that it's easy to forget, and we need need to be constantly reminded of what we need to be. Now that's sad, isn't it? that we as human beings have to be reminded over and over and over again, either we don't get it really, or we forget it, or in the heat of argument or quarrel or difficulty, it's easy to forget what we're supposed to be, because human nature basically is, should I say this, it's just a downer. That's what human nature is. It's easy to be discouraged. It's easy to be uninspired. It's easy to be angry. It's easy to be offended. It's easy to be self-centered. It's easy to be everything negative. It just comes natural. It's easy to hurt, easy to hate, easy to hold grudges, easy to remember everybody else's faults and sins for years back. Those things just come easy. Remembering everything you read in God's Word is very, very difficult. Sometimes I find myself reading the Bible, and my mind will wander off somewhere else, and I have to bring it back, and I have to go and I have to reread what I just read because my mind didn't stay there, and I just missed You know, the eyes went through the words, the words registered sort of on my mind, but I didn't get it, so I have to go back and read it again. You notice, especially if you're sleepy, you start trying to read God's Word, and it's very difficult to comprehend. I guess you should go put your head under a cold shower and come back and try again. I don't know. Or sometimes I just give up and put it down and go to sleep. We are so very, very human. Why did Moses have to come back and remind them in Deuteronomy 5 of what had occurred in Exodus 20? Because they forgot. They didn't get it. They said, yeah, man, I'll do that, and promptly forgot everything that said they'd do. You know, it's easy when you're engaged and you're looking forward to marriage, it's easy in some respects to say, oh, yeah, whatever you say, whatever you want, I'm here. Whatever you need, I'm here. I'll serve you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'll be yours and yours alone, and everything will be wonderful between us, and we can make promises, promises. Oh, can we make promises. You know, sometimes with married couples, they get along pretty well during the engagement, as soon as the vows are spoken, and the honeymoon is often a tragedy, all they do is fight. Well, sometimes they wait after the honeymoon to start. Sometimes they wait a year or two. Some say they never fight. Well, maybe they don't, but the silent treatment is about the same as a fight, isn't it? So it's easy to say what we will do. It's very difficult to do what we say we will do, isn't it? It's just being human. And I'm not here to make us feel in a way or a wrong way bad or discouraged. That comes easy, doesn't it? Why does he talk about how bad we are all the time? Well, I'm sorry. It's just because we're bad. You know, what can I say? We aren't yet what we need to be. I think you probably answered that when I first started. Are you ready to be the bride of Christ? Do you have everything all straightened out, ready to go? Ready to do everything a bride of Christ should do? Of course not. We all know we're not there yet. I'm not here to discourage. I'm here to, in a sense, educate, to remind, to maybe help us see, hopefully, in the next two sermons, a bigger picture of what our responsibility really is. You know, he says in Hosea that for lack of vision, the people perish. Now, I don't want anyone here to perish. I don't want to perish myself. So we need to see the big picture. The bigger you see the easier it is to accomplish. If you don't see the picture, it's hard to draw the picture. Artists often will try to paint a picture, but they don't just do it out of their head. You'll see them sitting alongside the road or in a park or something, and they have a subject they're trying to paint. So they want to have a clear vision of that bird or that pot of flowers or whatever it is they're painting, a mountainside. They need to see it in order to duplicate it. If they can't see it, it's just a figment of their imagination, then it is hazy. You can't get a real clear picture. What did a horse really look like? Well, if you're looking at a horse, it's easier to remember what a horse looks like, isn't it? So if they're going to paint a horse, they're sitting there looking at the horse. Because our memory is not always that good. The clearer you see something, the easier it is to accomplish it. That's what he's saying there. Without vision, they perish. If they can't see what they're trying to do, if they don't have a clear picture. How are they going to get it done? So let's try to get a better picture today, tomorrow, of where we're headed, what we need to do, how can we accomplish that? What do we have in God's word that would give us a better picture? Help us see? Well, the Bible's full of it. I mean that's what the whole book is here, is an instruction book on how to be a proper human being in order to become a proper God. That's what the whole book is all about. It's an instruction book for human life that is destined to become eternal life if the conditions of the book are followed. A lot of people argue with the Bible, don't they? They dismiss parts of it. They dismiss most of it. There are things in here they simply don't like to face because it might mean they would have to change some things. And it is so very easy, is it not, for us to read things in this book and then very quickly forget what we saw. So easily to move on in life, and somebody can stick it in our face, and we can be uncomfortable, and our toes can begin to wiggle in our shoes, and we can get where we're kind of shifting from hip to hip because we're a little embarrassed, or we think that could be me, or whatever. Or that could be somebody else, and I hope their toes are curling in their shoes. That's often the case as well. I know who he's talking about. But it's so easy to say, I will change that. I will do differently. And then to walk out and immediately forget what it was we were going to change. Because our interest is captured by something else, and we don't really grab hold on it and say, what am I going to do about this? How many sermons have you sat through since you've been in the church? Don't start counting now. I'll lose you entirely. But a lot, huh? How many sermonettes? How many times in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years since you've been really looking at God's Word the way it should be, have you read it? Probably thousands of times. How many of the problems you had 30, 40, 50 years ago when you came to God's church do you still have? Has there been progress on some of those? Maybe I am getting a little discouraging. See how easy it is to read, to hear, or to half hear, and then nothing happens. I'll do anything you say. I'll be your servant. I'll be whatever you want me to be. Deuteronomy 5, hear these commandments, that you may learn them and keep and do them, in the verse 1. The eternal, our God, made a covenant with us in Horeb. Now, that was a marriage covenant. He doesn't spell that out here. But later on in the prophecies, we see that it was a marriage that God intended to have with Israel, and in fact, did make a marriage covenant. The Eternal made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. So it hasn't been so long ago. It was just there when we came out of Mitzrium. And you're all still here. They hadn't all died in the wilderness yet. This was fairly soon after the Ten Commandments were given. And already he's saying, this was with you, remember? It wasn't about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. This is something God made with us. This isn't something that goes back to James, Peter, John, and so on. We were baptized in the end time in the church of God. We made a covenant with God that we would surrender ourselves entirely and completely to him and walk in his spirit, not in the flesh. How are we doing so far? The Eternal talked with you face to face in the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. God made that very, very personal with him, didn't he? When Christ was here on the earth, he was person to person with the disciples to become apostles for three and a half years. And yet they, as soon as the pressure came on a little bit, denied him. Even before he died, they denied him. Forgetting everything that they had been taught for three and a half years. It's like it had never been. They ate together, slept Lived together, I don't say slept together in a wrong way. You understand. We have to qualify these days, don't we? They were together day and night for those years. And the minute trouble came, I'm out of here. Fair weather sailors. Fair weather sailors don't do you a bit of good. Anybody can sail a ship and have fun during fair weather. What about when the waves are coming over the bow and across the sides? What about when there's ice on the side of the ship and you're out there in the numbing, freezing cold with ice cold water splashing over you trying to chip the ice off the deck so the ship doesn't roll over and fall and, dr- and sink? What about when the masks break? Masks breaks. Do we go down in the hull? and cower in a corner, or are we out there in the waves, in the wind, in the cold, in the danger, trying to make sure that the ship is safe? They did not yet have God's Holy Spirit. Now with you and me, God did not come to face to face with us as he did in Sinai. He did not come and live with us physically for three-and-a-half years. See, they didn't have the Spirit of God then, did they? And after they received it, then they were able to stand against anything that came along. Then they weren't just fair-weather sailors, and they had to prove. And God put them to the test, those disciples. All except John had to be martyred, had to be killed, go through the terror, the pain, the emotion of knowing they were about to be killed by other human beings who hated them. It was not a fun time for them at all. But after what they had done, and as human beings, they were tried to the ultimate, to death itself, and to death, in fact. Verse 5, I stood between the eternal and you at that time to show you the word of the eternal. For you were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mountain, saying, I am the eternal, your God, which brought you out of the land of Mitzrium from the house of bondage. And then he gave the ten commandments. Some of us wish sometimes that God would just tell us. He would just talk to us. Are you sure you want that to happen? Are you sure you're ready for that? These people couldn't handle it. Anyway, he gave those commandments. Verse 22, these words, eternal spoke to all your assembly in the mount, out of the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick darkness, with a great voice, and he added, no more. And he wrote them in two tablets of stone and delivered them to me. So you heard it, he wrote it, and I brought it, Moses says. And it came to pass, when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mountain did burn with fire, that you came near to me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders. They gathered around Moses. And you said, Behold, the eternal our God has showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God does talk with man, And man can live through it. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the eternal, our God, any more, then we shall die. We are scared nearly to death. And if we hear any more, I think we will die. They were that scared. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fires we have and lived? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's scary. He is so awesome, so powerful. But he is beyond our imagination. So, verse 27, Go you near, and hear all that the eternal our God shall say, and speak you unto us. All that the eternal our God shall speak to you, and we will hear it and do it. 24 7s we will hear everything that you bring to us that God says, and we will hear it and we will do it. Now, I have been commissioned by those who had the authority to do so to teach God's Word to God's people. And in there, it tells me not to let one word drop to the ground, but to preach and teach every word of God. And you, on baptism, began an engagement period in which you said, I will show over a period of time that I will do everything God says. So we willingly come and sit before this word. And sometimes the rub is there because it is a human being whom God has commissioned to speak it. And sometimes we let the human being get in the way of the Word of God. That has always been the case. Things about Paul bothered people, even his physical appearance, the sound of his voice and whatever I probably had that was not fun to look at. He appeared weak in some ways. It's really easy to look at the human being. It's real easy to think that it's the human who's speaking to you. And really, it's not. As God told Samuel, they've not rejected you, Samuel. You're feeling it. You feel their attitudes. You feel the abrasion. You feel the disrespect, you feel the humanness of the situation, but it isn't really you. It's me they're rejecting because you're representing me in the things you're saying and doing. God did it this way as part of the trial, if you will, as part of the growth situation. You know, I have the same struggle, brethren, that you have, every day, just like you. And didn't God himself say that every high priest of men has to go and make sacrifice for himself and clear the path between himself and God before he comes before you to offer for your sins? Well, ministry is in that same position. I'm here to speak to you, and yet I, too, am far from perfect. I have the same struggle every day you have. Now, you can disrespect that if you wish, when you see me make a goop or use my tongue when I shouldn't, in a way I shouldn't. But that doesn't do you any good. The Word of God stands. Now, they didn't like the woman that Moses married. They didn't like certain things about Moses. Aaron and Miriam, the high priest, his brother, his sister, rebelled against him. They looked upon him as a human being. And they began to find fault with him. And God punished them severely for that because he said, Moses is representing me And I put him in that position, and you need to listen to what Moses has to say, not get in a critical, abrasive attitude toward him. It was so easy to look at Moses' faults and forget what Moses represented. We are so very, very human. Now here they were rallying around Moses. Whatever God speaks, hey, we'll do it. No problem. You got it. And the Eternal heard the voice of your words, verse 28, when you spoke to me, and the Eternal said to me. Now, here's what he said after he heard what they said. Because he hears it all. You can't hide anything from him. You know, I can speak about various things, and then you'll be careful about those things around me. whether it be matters of conduct or the way we act and interact or the way we dress or whatever it might be, you'll get where you're paranoid and afraid of me. You'll do certain things in front of me, and then you'll go to town and do the same thing you wanted to do in the first place around here till I started yelling at you. Now, we are to be a light to the world. In some ways, understand this, in some ways, how you act, how you dress, how you comport yourself in town is far more important than how you do it here. See what I mean? We're to be a light to the world. Now, if we act one way here and we act different in town, the people in town eventually are going to begin to say, Is that some of those people from out there in that cane beds bunch? And then what kind of a testimony is it to God and to his people? Some of them are going to find out who you are, where you live, and who you represent. Now, many of them might not. But in many respects, how you act in town is far more important than how you act right here. Because among ourselves, we forgive and we make allowance for and we're meek and we're humble with each other and we respect each other highly and we don't stab each other in the back and we don't gossip about each other. And if you're imperfect here, it doesn't really hurt you because nobody notices. They're so busy getting the, mote out of, the beam out of their own eyes that they don't notice the moat in yours. Now shall we all stop and have a nice laugh? because we still do have our problems here. But don't think that just because you're away from here, (sighs) I'm out and do what I want to do. Somebody from the world might tie you to here. And then what kind of an example are we to the world around us? Now let's keep in mind that God called us to be a light to the world. To show them God by the way we live and act and react. We are called to do a work. And a very big part of that work is our example to the world. The Eternal heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Eternal said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They have well said all that they have spoken. God hears Hears us say, we'll do this. Yes, I want to be baptized. And it isn't just at baptism, but even a child is known by the way he acts. Sometimes we use the excuse, well, I'm not baptized, so I can just do whatever I want. No, you still represent us. You still represent God, even though you may not be baptized, because they know where you're from in many respects, in many instances. And so what you do, whether you're baptized or not, reflects on the rest of God's people. So even if you're not baptized, you're still considered to be an example by God. So God heard it, and he said, you spoke well. Then he continues, verse 29, Oh, that there were such an heart in them. I heard their words, and they spoke well. But oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me, And keep all my commandments always, 24-7, all his commandments, always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go say to them, get you to your tents again. But as for you, stand you here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land which I give them to possess it. So he said, yeah, they speak good, but their heart's not right. Send them to their tents. Let you and me talk. And you're going to have to continue to pound away on them week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year, and hope that they begin to get it, that their hearts begin to turn, that they have the heart that I'm looking for in them, that they not get discouraged, and turn away, but that they begin to truly get it. Didn't we hear a verse this morning, it won't quite come back to mind, but something about we're not to faint, but we're to move forward. Words to that effect, I'm paraphrasing, it won't quite come to me. See, I heard it this morning and I can't remember. It's easy to say, but it's hard to remember. All right, let's move on, because God did start a marriage covenant with Israel. Let's go to Ezekiel 16. Now, this isn't entirely Old Testament, once we get into the prophets, because, yes, there was a marriage agreement between God and Israel, and we know the story, that they said, yes, I will do, but the heart was not in them, And they strayed from God, and it finally wound up in divorce. They simply, they simply did not have the character, the ability, the capacity, the heart to keep their half of the bargain. So the marriage wound up on the rocks. Now here in Ezekiel 16, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing. We've gone there before. But let's understand a transition here that even though Ezekiel is recounting the history of ancient Israel, he is recounting that for people in the future. He is recounting that because God would eventually start a new marriage covenant with some of Israel. And that some of the same problems they had in the Old Testament marriage would crop up again in the new marriage. So this is both history and prophecy in Ezekiel 16. Now, we could go back to Ezekiel 5 and all through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and and all the prophecies, and we could show that physical Israel today is about to go into a dire captivity, one-third die of the sword, one-third by famine and pestilence, one-third go into captivity, and a sword be sent after them until there is less than 10% left. Of all Israel walking the earth today, of everyone in the United States, Canada, Western Europe, wherever Israel is found on the face of the earth, they're going to receive over 90% death in the very few years ahead of us. We know the New World Order plans to reduce the population by about 90% and God is going to allow that and God is going to be behind that because the whole world seeks after something other than God. So that's coming. Here in Ezekiel 16 though, I want to spend a little time here because He's talking specifically of the marriage situation, and that's where we are today, preparing ourselves to become the bride of Christ. Now here's history, and here's prophecy. Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, verse 2. And then he goes and shows that you don't look like Israelites at all. You look like the Gentiles of this world in terms of your, the way you act, it's like when I first started out with you, you were like a baby. Your navel wasn't cut. You weren't washed in water. You weren't swaddled at all. You, you weren't properly taken care of, and you didn't look, really look like a proper baby. Verse 6, and when I passed by you and saw you polluted in your own blood, I said to you, when were you in your blood, when you were in your blood, live. Don't die. Don't keep deteriorating. Live. Yes, I said to you when you were in your blood, live. He repeats it. I have caused you to multiply as the bud of the field, and you have increased and waxed great, and you have come to excellent ornaments. Your breasts are fashioned, your hair is grown, whereas you were naked and bare. In other words, you've gone through puberty, you've grown up. You aren't a baby anymore. Now it's time for what? Now when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, the time was the time of love. They'd grown up, and now was the time to start talking about engagement and marriage. Speaking of Israel as with the analogy of a woman. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you, said the eternal God, and you became mine. Now we were out in the world, we were born into this world, weren't we? We weren't reared properly. We got ourselves into all kinds of problems and sins and psychoses and difficulties and then finally we began to recognize this way of living isn't gonna make me happy. And God began at some point to deal with us as individuals. In some cases he had to smack us around and smack us down until we surrendered and said, I'm not going to be me anymore, I'm going to be like you. And I'm going to I'm going to spend my entire being trying to become like you are. I surrender. I've had it. The way of this world, I don't want anymore. I'm going to do it your way. So he forgave our sins. He covered our sins. He uses the analogy here of I spread my skirt over you. I covered up. Your nakedness, your sins, your past, your history, your problems. I forgave that in the blood of my son, and you became mine. Slaves of Christ. That's what we vowed to do. And anyone who takes a vow and treats that vow lightly is in serious, serious trouble with God. A vow... To him in scripture, we won't go to all those, is a very important thing. And what you made, the time you were baptized, was a vow to God. I accept your terms, I accept your conditions, I'll do anything you say 24-7, whatever you need, I'm here. We said that to God. I washed you with water. I baptized you. I washed your sins away. Yes, I thoroughly washed away your blood from you, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you." And then he goes and talks about how he dressed us all up. He gave us wonderful, wonderful spiritual gifts. mentions physically here, but really he's speaking in a spiritual sense of all the wonderful tools he gave us to be like him. The rules, the regulations, his word, his word is truth, the truth will set you free. On and on and on it goes of the wonderful things that are in this book that God gave us to help us be successful human beings and in so doing become a successful candidate as a bride of God himself, of Christ. Everything we need is here. There is not a word that you need to hear that is not included in this book. Live by every word of God. Bring every thought into the captivity of God. And I've got you all on that one. Because none of us bring every thought into the captivity. We let our thoughts go a lot of different places that they should not go. Even just selfishness or self-centeredness or any kind of pride or vanity and our minds, our looks, our whatever. And we demonstrate those things in various ways. Well, God gave us everything we needed. And you did prosper into a kingdom, verse 13. We prospered into a church. And your renown, renown went forth among the heathen for your beauty. We were known by the governments around the world. And our pictures of our auditorium, of our uh, gymnasium, and our college campuses and all that were emblazoned in pictures, magazines, and taken by Herbert Armstrong to the very rulers of the world. And we had, in that sense, a great renown. We had even our cultural foundation. We brought the Vienna Symphony Orchestra into Pasadena, and all those things we did, and we became known. For it was perfect through my comeliness. I did these things through you, which I had put upon you, says the Eternal. But you did trust in your own beauty, and played the harlot because of your renown, and poured out your fornications on every one that passed by, His it was. We began to be more and more worldly. We began to spend less time with God and doing the things of God. And we became more like the world. We started going back to makeup. We started going back to the doctors. We started going here. We started doing this, started doing that. We began to forget those things that had caused us to begin to have success. We began to get selfish. And we committed whoredoms with the world. Just as our nation is doing, the church was doing as well. Now, God paints us here basically as sluts. That's he paints us in what we became. Ancient Israel became that, and we as a church became that. Do we want to be known as those sluts from Cain I don't think so. We want to be known as those God-fearing people who don't lie, cheat, steal, whose morals are good, who do the right things, who set a wonderful example. They work, they don't backbite, they don't stab, they don't cut corners, they work hard. That's a good bunch of people. That's the kind of reputation we want to have, isn't it? We want the world. They may I like what they see in terms of our doctrine, our beliefs. Well, they got some crazy ideas, but I'll tell you one thing. They sure are good people. When they tell you they'll do something, they'll do it. They work harder than anybody I ever saw. They're more honest than any people I've ever been around. They're crazy, but they're wonderful. That's a paradox in itself. But I think that is how the world should view us, isn't it? Bit strange, but they are wonderful to work with and to be around. And they do believe what they believe. And they will not compromise on what they believe. Those are people that don't just say it, but they live it. They drink. Boy, they won't get drunk with us. No, that's what they'd like you to do after work sometimes. Party, party, party. No, they don't do that. They live what they believe. See, we're here to be a light to the world. We're not to be like them. We're not to go to the same excess of riot they go to. We're there to set an example for them. Now, if you're around them much, they're going to pull you down. You're not going to pull them up. So you just have to treat them, be friendly with them, Don't do the things they do. And if you're with them much, you'll begin to do the things they do. That's the way it works. That's what happens. He goes on, and he just said, I've had it with you. I'm not going to read the rest of Ezekiel 16. We've read the whole thing before and gone through it. But Israel said, yes, we'll be your wife. And then they went the other way. Now let me ask you, after God has had this experience with ancient Israel, and then he puts us through a marriage covenant, an engagement, a betrothal in the New Testament with the Holy Spirit, and he is thinking of you and me as candidates to marry Christ. Do you think he is ready to go through the same thing he's gone through before? If human beings go through a really, really bad marriage that doesn't work, do you think they want to go into another one that's going to be the same way? No, they don't. Often they do, but they don't want to. Usually, once they learn to pick losers, they get good at it, man or woman. And they keep marrying the same kind over and over. They can't seem to somehow get out of that rut. That's the way people do. Not always, but in general. I've, had a lot of, I've seen a lot of situations where it was maybe the fourth or fifth marriage, and they kept marrying the same kind of loser. Pick a different kind of loser, at least. But God doesn't want any losers. He wants people who have such an heart in them, who will do what they say they will do, who will live up to the covenant. That's what he's looking for. Jeremiah 33. Here I want about verse 11. Well, let's start in 10. Thus says the eternal... Again there shall be heard in this place, which you say shall be desolate, without man and without beast, even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. God, because of Israel's sins, made Jerusalem a desolate place. It was desolate for many generations, Jeremiah 9 and Isaiah 60:51 and so on. No, it isn't 51. 61, whatever it is, say. God wouldn't even let people live in Jerusalem for many, many generations. Actually, it's been thousands of years since people lived at Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, because of what we just read in Ezekiel 16 and other scriptures. So it's been desolate because of sin. But he says in verse 11 that the voice of joy the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, Praise the Eternal of hosts, for the Eternal is good, for his mercy endures forever, and of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Eternal, for I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first, says the Eternal. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Again in this place, which is desolate, without man and without beast, And all the cities thereof, not just Jerusalem, but the cities of Judah and Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, in the original promised land, are again going to be inhabited, God says. And shall be an habitation of shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down. He goes on and talks about the beauty that will be there. So God didn't say, after everything Israel did, I've had it. (laughs) That's the end of it. I'll never marry again. But he's not going to make the same mistake twice. He's looking for a different kind of woman now. He's looking for one that is responsive, that really means it when she says, I will do all that you say. That's the kind he wants this time. He wanted that the first time and didn't get it. Now he's made... A different covenant, a new one. And Jeremiah's talking about this here. Let's go back to chapter 31, verse 11. Or no, 31, verse 28, 21. Set you up waymarks, make you high heaps. Set your heart toward the highway, even the way which you went. Turn again, O Virgin of Israel, turn again to these your cities. How long will you go about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Eternal has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. God says things are going to change. He said before I courted Israel, I worked at bringing Israel to me as a proper bride. This time, I am going to make things so difficult, so arduous, so hard, I am going to make it to the point she finally repents and turns around and comes after me. She is going to have to come and court me for a change. A new thing, a woman shall compass or shall seek or shall romance a man. This time it will be different, God says. I'm not going after her. She's going to have to come after me. In fact, I'm going to turn my face away from her. And I'm going to keep my face turned away until she makes such a case for herself that I can't help it, and I turn and smile and say, you got it now, girl. I'll go for that. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for you and me. To this time, do what we said we will do. Not just words. Words without action don't mean much. They don't mean anything. Be you not hearers of the word only, but doers. God is not in high pursuit of us. He's not bringing us flowers every day, is he? He isn't waiting on us hand and foot, is he? Is he healing us every time we want to be healed? Is he blessing us with work and lots of money every time we want some? Is God going out of his way to court us? No. He's not courting us. He said, it's different this time, boys and girls. You're going to court me. You're going to do the things that would make me want to marry you. Jeremiah 29. When you turn to me with your whole heart, then I will turn to you and smile and wipe away your sins as a cloud in one day. The shoe is on the other foot. It is our job to get his attention this time. He spoke loudly. He came in person. He brought flowers to Israel. He gave them every good and perfect gift. He gave them a promised land flowing with milk and honey and grapes so big it took two men to carry a bunch. He gave them a land that had everything you could possibly want, need, or desire. And they said, oh, thank you. I'll do anything you say. And then did everything opposite of what he said. So he said, hey, I'm done with that. You come to me. Here are the conditions I want met if I'm going to consider marrying you. You get this in hand, you get this done, then we're going to talk. See the challenge before us? See what our forefathers did to us? See what we did to ourselves and worldwide? He was considering marrying us. Still, we were then candidates for the kingdom of God and the marriage of the Lamb, weren't we? And we became so sickening in his eyes but he just vomited us out and scattered us into hundreds of pieces. We were that repugnant to him. You know, when you want to throw up, you don't really want to, do you? I've laid there sometimes. I am i going to throw up. I will throw up. I don't want to throw up. That's going to taste awful. Maybe it'll go away. No, it isn't. Ugh. And I'll lay there until the last second and then just make a beeline for the toilet. I wanted not to do that, but finally, just the thought of it was enough to turn it that much further, and away we go. Now, God began to feel a little queasy with us. And he thought, oh, maybe they'll repent. Maybe they'll change. Maybe they'll quit doing those things that they're doing, and maybe they'll really turn to me. And then he saw us continuing the way we were, and his stomach turned a little more. And then finally he just said, I won't do that. I might wake you up. And spewed us up. And here we are, swirling round and round in the toilet bowl, are we going down a lot of god's people are going to go right on down have you ever picked through the puke to see if you could find something that's worth saving i never have honest i haven't i doubt i ever will Now, God has a stronger stomach than I do, brethren. He's picking through the puke. He's trying to find something that he can wash off that isn't completely spoiled, that's redeemable. And that would be you and me. Not a very pleasant job. And you know what? He's only going to find a small remnant that's worth picking out and washing off and swallowing again. Don't anybody run to the bathroom. Some of you have very sensitive stomachs, I know. But that's God's analogy. That's not mine. Only this time in the spirit of Jeremiah 31, he's saying, all right, maybe I won't pick through it all. Maybe I will just watch and see who cleans themselves up. I'll put the pressure on, but I'm not going to just clean them up myself. I'm going to make them clean themselves up and make themselves acceptable. And when they get on cleaning themselves up, I want them to approach me and say, Father in heaven, forgive me a sinner. I hope I don't look like puke anymore. Wash my sins away. Clean me up in the blood of Christ because I can't get myself clean. I've worked at it and I've tried. And I'm having trouble. Give me help. This time I mean it. This time, not only do I say I'll do what you say, this time I will do it. What is what he's looking for. Not hearers, but doers. We've got to court him. That vision, if you don't hear anything else today, hello, if you don't hear anything else, Get that, okay? Maybe your mind's wandered today somewhere. Maybe you ate too much and you've been sleepy. I don't know. Maybe you just don't like the way I look. I'm sorry. Christ himself was just as ugly. He wasn't anything to look at that anyone would desire. Whatever reason, you're not hearing tune it out, fix it, listen. This time, we have to convince him he wants to marry us. A woman shall compass a man. He's not bringing us the flowers. We've got to bring him flowers. He's not taking us to dinner. We've got to take him to dinner. Oh, that there were such an heart in them. Christ wants a good marriage. He doesn't want anything half-hearted. He doesn't want promises, promises. He's had those over and over again. Promises, promises. Do we need to go to Hosea 1? I'm supposed to be about done to it now. I don't know how how this happened. Let's let's go to Hosea. <clears throat> I actually have till four thirty, but I'm trying to cut these back a little bit. Let's see, two thirty off. So we we do have a little time. I'll use some of it. You remember the story, so I'm not going to go through here and, and and read the whole thing and go through it in great detail, but you remember where Hosea was told, Hosea, I want you to go marry yourself a whore. Now, I don't know how Hosea took that. It probably was a difficult thing for him to swallow. Uh, but he said I want you, and the marriage that you're about to make, to picture what has gone on between God and Israel. And she has become a whore. And this is an end-time prophecy in Hosea. It's about the church today, as well as ancient Israel. So he said, those aren't my people anymore. I'm going to spew them out. You name the children, You are not. I am not your God, you are not my people, and so on, and I will not be your God, verse 9. And yet, the number of the children of Israel should be as the sand of the sea, verse 10. There's going to be a lot of them, but it's just not going to be my children. I'm not going to pay any attention to them, physical Israel. But the church, spiritual Israel, he is one to deal with. Small part of Israel and the Gentiles. He's going to, anybody who will listen, it doesn't matter whether you were blood Israel or whether you're pure Gentile, you have opportunity to be a spiritual Israelite. Because God says, I'm done dealing with just physical Israel. I'll take anybody that will serve me and obey me and do what I say. Remember the woman that came to him He said, oh no, I, I'm not going to take care of you. You're a a dog, a Gentile. I didn't come here. I came here to to deal with Israel. And she said, don't even the dogs get what comes off the table? And he was moved with compassion and he healed. Yes, I will honor that. And it wasn't long after that, that he invited with an open heart and in fact sent apostles out, specifically Paul, Go preach to the Gentiles. I want them here. If any of them will listen, I want them. I will graft them in. And they will be just like the natural children. There will be no difference whatsoever. They're all the same. Anybody who breathes on this earth and will do what I say, I will accept God just opened it wide open. Chapter 2, Say you to your brothers, Ami and your sisters, or plead with your mother. Church is the mother of us all, as Paul indicates in Galatians 4. Plead with your mother, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. We're not yet married. We are betrothed. And we have not been living in a way that would inspire him to say, Honey, let's go get hitched. You're everything I would ever want in a woman. That's what he's looking for in you and in me. He wants to look down at you, whatever your name is out here in this room, or on the telephone, or on the CD someday when you hear it. He's looking at you and saying, well, that one's, that one's kind of coming along, maybe. This one over here, that's doing pretty good, too. What about that one? Well, uh, give it some time. But hopefully now, after he's split the church all apart, blown it away, parts of it are crawling out of the pew, And washing themselves off and making themselves presentable. And praying and crying out to him daily to help them clean it up because you just can't do it on your own. You need help. That's the way we all are. Seeking him with our whole heart. Now, if you get some gal coming after you with her whole heart, you might begin to kind of respond, right? What was it like when you were back dating? You had one wouldn't even speak, smile, or give you the time of day. You weren't too keen to pursue that one, were you? You're a little more interested in somebody that would smile and wave and say, Hi, how are you? And maybe talk with you. You know, it was encouraging if they'd talk with you. There might be something could develop here. Now, God is just looking for those that will really talk to him. Find some that are eager and interested. Some that care. Some that might say, oh, you know, big boy, you look pretty good. I think I'd love to marry you. I think I'm going to be around a lot. We're going to talk a lot. We're going to spend some time together. We're going to get this thing going. That's what he's looking for. He wants somebody that will pursue him for a change. Not him come after them and they say, yeah, I'll marry, and then do just the opposite of everything they promised. I'll not have mercy upon her children, verse 4, for they be the children of whoredoms. Their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. The church is partly responsible, and those who followed along with the Laodiceanism are responsible as well. Verse 8, for she did not know that I gave, I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Now, we were Christian in name, but we went after the gods, the entertainments, the things of this world. We were willing to go and watch demonic movies and those full of fornication and adultery and lying and cheating and stealing and fraud. We're willing to go see those, pay money to go see garbage because it's entertaining to us, because we enjoy watching sin of one form or another. We can talk about it a lot. Are if going to change anything? Are we going to change the way we eat or just give it lip service and keep eating junk? Are we going to change what we watch on television and even how much we watch so we have time to seek God? You know, back when you are dating and wanting to be engaged, or maybe were engaged, you set aside a lot of time for each other, didn't you? The one you were thinking of married, you spent a lot of time thinking about. You spent a lot of time calling or didn't you didn't text back then. You spend a lot of time writing letters, talking on the phone, just sitting and looking at each other. Whatever. Enamored. Excited. This is fun. I want to live every moment of my life with you. I'll never let you out of my sight. Twenty years later, it's go away. No, not always. Always. How much time do we spend chasing Christ? How much do we spend time do we spend trying to get his attention, trying to look beautiful for him, trying to act like a bride of Christ? He gave us everything we need to be what we need to be. But everything in us, tries to pull us a different direction. It isn't natural to human beings to be anything but selfish and proud and vain and egocentric. That's just the way we are by nature. Where is this one I'm looking for here? There's one down here. It says, if you'll get rid of all the junk, clean yourselves up. Verse 18, And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth you to me Forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the eternal. So once we convince him that he should marry us, then he is going to do that, and it's going to be on a righteous level. And there will be mercy and kindness and gentleness, things we heard about this morning, meekness. And we'll treat each other with love and kindness, as sister wives, if you will. In a weird sort of way, Christ is marrying 144,000, that's lots of sister wives. Isn't it? Now that's in the spirit, that's not in the flesh. We're not promoting polygamy out here, even some might think. Well, some might think we are since we live near some. It's not it at all. But that's the way he wants us to be. So it's us. it's up to us, isn't it, to convince him, I want to marry that one. That's one that I'd like to live with forever. There's one I'd like to be around. There's one that's full of love and gentleness and kindness and goodness and Service and love and just just somebody I just really enjoy being around. you got to convince him of that. you got to get him to say, honey, will you marry me? We go to him. Maybe we have to ask him, will you marry me? Are you ready to ask him that? As I hold my hands up and say that, I'm hoping we're to that point someday. I don't really think I'm quite ready to ask him that. I'm afraid he'll say, um, let's give this some time. I don't think I'm ready to ask the question. I need to make some changes. I need to grow some. I need to chase him a little harder. I need to bring him some more flowers. I need to say, honey, I'm sorry a lot more times. Maybe I just need to plow, frown up and cry all over myself more times and get rid of a lot of things that might make him say, uh, I don't know. Maybe. I can live with maybe. See, I've already got maybe. He's already told me, if you'll do everything I say and hear, I will marry you. Now the maybe is, I haven't quite got this done yet, by a, <laughs> quite, by a long shot. And therefore, it's still maybe. And it'll be maybe until you rise off the ground on the day of Trumpets, when that judgment has finally fully been made. I think we'll stop there for today. I have more that I'd like to get into, but we'll save it for tomorrow, and we've had enough to think about today. Let's just get out there and convince him he wants to marry us. If we we can get that out of this today, I feel that I've accomplished something.